millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Architectural assistants speak out over poor pay and conditions. Developer rebuilds Maidervale pub six years after pulling it down. A parliamentary inquiry launched into permitted development rights. Seven concepts shortlisted for Hackney's embattled anti-pavilion commission. And Assemble named among ten winners in the Festival of Brexit contest. My name is Merlin Fulcher, I'm an architectural journalist, and I'll be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to The Lundown. My special guest this week is Ella Jessel. Ella is senior reporter at the Architects Journal, the AJ. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Merlin. Our first story relates to a major AJ investigation by Ella, in which architectural assistants have spoken out over poor pay, precarious contracts and COVID rule breaking at some of London's biggest firms. The article suggests architectural assistants who have been the focus of a new campaign against a growing, quote, culture of exploitation led by Future Architects Front could be bearing the brunt of the profession's race to the bottom. Following a survey of 1,500 people and interviews with almost two dozen architectural assistants, the AJ has lifted the lid on claims of bogus freelance contracts, the widespread use of unpaid internships, and pay below minimum wage. Shockingly, 88% of respondents reported never being paid for overtime, with some staying on shift until 3 or 4am, with only a takeaway pizza for compensation. Working at weekends or over holiday periods is also seemingly commonplace. Some of the most concerning claims include a postgraduate working for 10 weeks for free, An assistant being led to believe unpaid work would lead to a full-time job, which transpired to be only part-time. Another working on hours and a wage set by a company, but without any contract at all. And yet another forced to resign after raising concerns over workplace COVID bubbles. For many, the poor conditions have taken a toll on their mental health, with one claiming they feel victim to an abuse of power. Ella What's this all about? What did you find out when you surveyed and interviewed architectural assistants, a group of people who, you know, while providing much of the labour in architecture, rarely have a voice of their own in architecture media? So in a nutshell, uh, this story tried to sort of dig into some of the current realities of life as an architecture assistant in the UK. As everyone knows, architects have to train for seven years to become fully qualified. And it means that a lot of them spend 
their 20s or longer even assistant roles. And I think you hit on something important with your question about them not really having their own voice, um, because despite nearly every practice likely employing you know, at least one assistant, there's something of an unknown quantity um, and they exist in a bit of a grey area sort of between student and professional. In this feature, I spoke to a lot of assistants on Twitter and Zoom, email, a lot of university lecturers as well. And I was actually really shocked at some of the stories I was told and the extent of the disillusionment felt by those who are still so young in their careers. I think as, you know, the testimonies that you were talking about before, Merlin, are pretty awful, really. I mean, one said, as you said, one said, you know, they were asked to work for free around their initial, their original, sorry, nine to five job with the promise of a job that never materialised. Another said they worked somewhere with no contract and said that, you know, female assistants were hired as they followed instructions easier, <laughs> things like that. Um, others, you know, said being sent drawings at 3am and on weekends and expected to actually reply to those emails. And also just some really basic employment rights stuff, like no contracts and being paid, you know, in some cases below minimum wage, let alone the um, REBA recommended wage which is higher which is the real living wage defined by the living wage foundation so i think yeah just some just some really really shocking stuff exactly i certainly i I had a look through the feature and there's some sort of pull out stats there like 48 percent of part one saying that they're paid less than the real living wage and with part twos 15 percent of them uh also in the same situation i mean Obviously, we are sort of hearing one side of the story. Is is the situation really as bad as architectural assistants claim? What sort of responses have you had from, say, like the big bosses of architecture companies and the trade bodies that represent them, like the RIBA, when you put these claims forward? Yeah, I mean, obviously not all practices are treating their assistants badly. Um, but I think, you know, the response was interesting from lecturers that I contacted Um quite a few heads of architecture schools who, you know, who work with part three and part two students every day really agreed there was big issues in the way that system's working. So Paul Crosby at the AA told me this is not just a case of a few bad apples, you know, this is this is something that's happening across practice. Um, and I think that's important to remember. Um, in terms of uh, other responses from different bodies, the union, the Section of Architectural Workers Union said that the results of the survey and the uh, sort of interviews that I did with, it, with them some of the assistant assistants highlighted the sort of state the industry was in, to be honest, and said that they'd settled £100,000 worth of claims for members in similar situations. So I think they sort of, their experience mirrors that, I think. As for the ROBA, um, they've responded to the concerns made by the, the Future Architects Front campaign, which was one of the sort of catalysts for looking into this issue. And they've made, you know, they they said that they condemn a lot of this, of this to be fair to the TRBA, but um, in terms of what they can actually do about it, you know, that's that remains pretty um, opaque at the moment. Um, there's questions over how much influence and control they have. I haven't heard from many practice bosses, I'm going to be honest. Obviously, uh, there are the ones that I approach for comment um, in response to specific claims made by assistants in the article that I wrote. Most of those were no comment responses. Um, and there's been a bit of chatter on Twitter, you know, with some practice directors about where the where the blame lies here and that kind of thing. But I think overall, um, this was about really speaking to the assistants themselves um, and talking to them and getting their side of the story, which isn't always told. So, um, yeah, practice bosses haven't heard a lot from them. Would like to, though. I'd like to know what they think. Well, that would be the follow up. In, in, in hearing these kind of unheard voices, do you get the feeling that 
um this this so so-called sort of culture of exploitation is is newer or somehow worse now or do you get the feeling this is something that's that's always been troubling architectural workers below the surface and very much hidden out of view I think that's a really interesting question. I think it's been this way for a long, long time. And I think everybody knows that. I think these are issues that are not new, um, but that doesn't mean that they shouldn't be talked about and discussed. In terms of some of the, you know, the unpaid internships, for example, is obviously a huge problem. Um, and it's sort of been pushed underground. You know, the RBA was quite vocal about opposing unpaid internships. There was a government crackdown in 2018. Um, and now you, it's, you don't really get, you know, you're not going to get someone posting a job ad for an unpaid internship because social media would sort of tear them apart. But you are still getting people working for free. And if you factor in uh, the amount, huge amounts of unpaid overtime that architects are doing, then, you know, that is a de facto unpaid internship, isn't it? If you're being, you know, maybe you're getting just about the living wage for your for your hours that you're getting your contract. But then if you're working until 2 a.m. every night, you know, is that just a new type of unpaid internship in a way? And another element we haven't touched on obviously is COVID. And I think um, in response to the question about has it always been this way, I think COVID's made it worse for this particular batch of architectural assistants. And I think that's why you've got this all coming out now in some ways, because a lot of assistants haven't actually been able to get jobs. So obviously part, you know, if you're doing your year out, you need to work in practice. That's required um, in order to to um, carry on your journey as on the route to becoming an architect. Um, but People, because practices, understandably, aren't actually hiring as many part one and part twos as they were, um, people aren't getting jobs. And I think there's probably frustration is sort of boiling over a bit. Well, yeah, certainly as someone who graduated in 2008, I have a lot of sympathy for people starting their careers in the present crisis. It really does have a massive um, negative impact, frankly. Um, I mean, I've been following some of the kind of Twitter buzz uh, around this article and like a lot of people basically sort of asking you know is it right to focus blame on employers or is this part of a, a wider problem in architecture so you know many people would look at the long hours of architectural education and say this is setting a poor precedent uh, or a, bad, a precedent for poor working practices uh, and then graduates inevitably kind of continue this when they enter into uh, employment but then others would also say that the real drivers are uh, the culture of long hours and that comes from the clients who make unreasonable demands on architecture studios and refuse to pay sufficiently high fees to actually resource uh, the business uh, properly. So, you know, is it the boss uh, who's always to blame or are there other culprits here? <laughs> I think it depends on the case. Um, it depends what we're talking about. I think that if an employer is making their assistant work at 3am or working on furlough or making them come into the office against their will during the middle of a pandemic, I think the blame should be on the employers. We have to remember there's a lot of a lot of the time within, I think, discussions about architecture. We forget that architecture practices are companies and they have a duty of care over their employees. Um, of course, you know, practices are under all sorts of pressures and there's huge issues related to the fee model and you know, we can talk until the cows come home about how we can reform that. But at the end of the day, if you can't afford to pay your staff correctly, then your business model isn't working. I don't know if that's that controversial. It seems to be quite a controversial view, but <laughs> um, I, I kind of think it's kind of pretty basic stuff, really. Um, I, as for architecture schools, I think I agree to some extent. I think they still need to do a lot of work. But also, I don't know if it's sometimes a bit overstated, this idea about architecture students staying up all night. I mean, don't all students stay up all night to hit deadlines at university? Um, shouldn't, that, shouldn't that be then sort of wiped out when you get into an actual job rather than practices just saying, oh, it's always been this way, so 
you know, therefore we're going to be working until two in the morning. No, it's up to pl- employers to, to, to really sort of weed it out. I mean, certainly we're in uncharted territory with the pandemic. Um, but I mean, is there a sense that architectural, some architectural employers have kind of failed to respond in the right way to the sort of complex challenges that have been thrown up by it um, that we've encountered certainly in the year uh, 2020? And, and could this have quite an interesting legacy? I mean, this like moment of a whole generation of architectural assistants speaking out uh, in response to some of this bad, res- bad uh, handling of the situation. Yeah, the optimist in me would like to think that this is the beginning of, you know, a change. Um, the pessimist says that it's probably not. Um, but yeah, I think, I mean, Ollie Wainwright's piece, I think it was earlier in the year in The Guardian about um, some of the, the practices that were going on um, it, during COVID with, you know, spying on employees and stuff was absolutely, it's just not okay. I think there's a bit of a, you know, we've seen this all before, but no one can say they've seen that before. Um, and I think, you know, there are a lot of jaded architects out there and I think they should listen to the younger ones and draw on their energy and commitment to making change rather than just say, we've been here before, let's not bother talking about it because it's nothing we can do about it. Do you know what I mean? I mean, certainly an interesting press release that was sent out this week by, by that union, the United Voices of the World Section of Architectural Workers, um, was saying, quote, all practices must implement a four-day week without a drop in pay. Um do you think it's realistic for all practices to to switch to all days? Um, I don't know. Why not? I mean, I, I guess it's compressed hours, isn't it? So it's quite common. It's not that radical, but um, I don't expect it to happen. <laughs> it's something that we at Open City have embraced uh, the four oh, day. Oh, lucky you. Um, but then again, I suppose there's that question of, you know, are broad, broad brush demands like this a bit too sweeping to take account of, say, for example, the very small architecture companies that exist in the industry that might just employ one or two people? Yeah, I suppose that as a union, it's probably good for them to aim big and see what they can results they can get. I mean, potentially it won't you know actually lead to anything, but I think it's quite good to sort of put these ideas out there into the mix. Our second item is all about the Carlton Tavern in Maidavale, and it's been covered in the AJ, The Guardian and BBC London News. It's all to do with a 1920s pub which has been painstakingly rebuilt brick by brick by a developer, CTLX, six years after the same company demolished the structure just days before it was due to be recommended for listed protection from redevelopment. Now due to reopen for outdoor drinking on 12th of April, The reconstruction was the result of a committed campaign by local residents, which appears to have left a powerful precedent stopping similar actions by other developers. After being refused planning permission for conversion into 10 flats, the developer ordered the Carlton Tavern's demolition. It went ahead just two days before English Heritage was due to recommend it for Grade 2 listed status. But thanks to Westminster Council's instructions and a planning inquiry, CTLX was forced to rebuild the pub as an almost exact replica. The outcome also meant it could be harder for others to bend the rules when it comes to converting much-loved pubs into housing. Ella, what's this all about? Why is this such a big deal? And could it help shift the power balance when it comes to local communities' influence over changes to important social facilities? Well, I think this story is really great. Um, I actually remember it from back in the day when I worked on a, as a local reporter in, in the area. But um, yeah, it's sort of like a morality tale for 21st century London development, isn't it? It's got all the usual cast. It's got determined local community. It's got gutsy council. It's got a developer. Um, but I guess the unusual thing is that it's sort of the developer realises the error of their ways um, and actually has to rebuild the pub 
that they've demolished. Um, so I think it's a great story. Um, I guess on your wider point, um, yeah, the pub should should never have been demolished in the first place. But it does it does act as a kind of cautionary tale to other developers who might want to come along and do a similar thing. Um, and it does sort of link up to wider issues of the role of how communities can um, sort of act to, um, you know, to reclaim these the important local facilities. Well, you know, certainly here at Open City, we're always championing pubs. It was a big theme in the Open House 2020 festival. And um, I mean, when we look at this, I mean, why, why is the plight of pubs so important in a city like London? You know, especially a city like this, where, you know, the, va- the high value of residential property seems to dominate so much of how we experience our built environment now. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think um, I think there was an interesting article actually in Vice the other day about a pub in Nunhead. Um, I think it was by Dan Hancocks. Um, and he was writing about, you know, the, the value. Unfortunately, you know, pubs are always worth more when they're when they're turned into homes um, financially, obviously not to the communities that enjoy them. Yeah, I just think that's it's just a really important point. And like when when you're actually putting an article together like this, I mean, I understand. I can see there's some quotes in there that you actually spoke to the people who did this painstaking job of rebuilding it, um, brick by brick. I mean, it must be it must be a pretty complicated thing. What did they tell you? It's a bizarre brief, isn't it? Here's a pub that's just been demolished, um, and now please put it back together again. It's sort of Humpty Dumpty style. Um, and I think they had to sort of. I mean, I I read one article that said that there was a you know there was literally a pint glass left on the table. Um, and that was the kind of state it was left in. And the rest of the, the pub would just sort of collapse around it. But there was a lot of um, stuff they could salvage, including fireplaces. They got the original fireplaces were salvaged um, and some of the um, the lettering. There was some amazing lettering, which they managed to rescue. Um, but they had to build it sort of brick by brick, like an exact replica. Historic England were about to list this pub um, and give it, uh, I think it was grade two listing, um, two days before... Um, it, it got demolished, so it was real, really poised to be protected. That meant that they had loads of information that could be used. So, I think they even had like plaster casts of some of the tiles and that kind of thing. So they had loads of photographs. So they basically had to sort of piece it together from from documents. Certainly, you know, if you go and look at Ella's article on the AJ website, one of the things that's striking is the photo of this re- rebuilt pub, and it, it looks pretty convincing. You know, it really does just look like a 1920s pub, and it's not hard to see that it's um, it's being rebuilt. But um, one, of the, one of the things that AJ's really been banging the drum for in its uh, retro-first campaign is basically saying, look, we need to um, retrofit and, and protect more buildings like this. And um, yeah, certainly. Do you, does this whole story kind of emphasise that? You know, why you should just look at a pub like this and just say, never demolish it, just keep it. Yeah, I think there are so many reasons why you wouldn't want to demolish a pub like that. You know, firstly, though, it's been around since the 1920s. It survived the Blitz. Um, and yeah, like, you know, the, obviously the carbon cost of demolishing a pub and then rebuilding a new one, it's so unnecessary. Um, uh, it's just, it's just hilarious that this actually happened, though, that this pub actually got rebuilt. I mean... Anyone who's done, written anything about development and pubs or, you know, in the city in the last five years will just know how mad it is that it actually got rebuilt. Because I remember when it came, when it happened and everyone was like, oh, there's no way this this pub is actually going to get rebuilt. It's one of those planning things where everyone looks at it and goes, oh, yeah, um, you know, that pub has been made to be rebuilt. But it's actually there. I mean, you're going to have a pint in it. It's, it's crazy. And it's there and it's going to be a pub. Whereas I think... <laughs> it's going to be a pub. <laughs> one day, one day when this is over and you can have a you can have a pint again. And yeah, we will record a London down there and have a pint. It's going to be a big party there, yeah. 
Our third story was reported in the Architects Journal in an article by Ella, who's covered this topic uh, extensively in previous articles. It's all to do with a parliamentary inquiry to examine the government's controversial rollout of permitted development rights. Heralded by the government as a way to introduce greater flexibility, to boost housing delivery and to kickstart the construction sector, permitted development rights allow developers to bypass planning permission in certain situations. Originally focusing on just underused office buildings which could become housing, the latest legislation has seen permitted development rights extended. This has allowed developers to bypass full planning when converting a much wider range of building types, such as shops, restaurants, health facilities, nurseries, offices and light industrial buildings. It also allows the upward extension of post-war housing blocks as well as smaller private housing. And more controversially, it allows office buildings to be demolished and rebuilt as homes as long as they stay within the same footprint. The inquiry follows a widespread controversy over the practice, which has often resulted in substandard small homes, described by some campaign groups as, quote, slums of the future, and even according to a government-commissioned report, a threat to the health, well-being and quality of life. Spearheaded by the Housing Communities and Local Government Committee, the inquiry will ask whether permitted development rights are capable of enabling the economic and societal recovery we need after COVID-19. Ella, what's this all about? Why are permitted development rights proving to be such a controversial topic and so political? Um, Do we all gain from them or is it just property developers looking to save money and drive down standards? I think it's mainly the property developers that that gain from permitted development rights. Um, so permitted development rights, um, I'm sure most people know, but it's a it's a planning loophole where you can bypass planning full planning route in order to convert buildings into residential housing. Um, and it's it's been sort of used by the government on numerous occasions as a kind of as part of their deregulation drive, and it gets announced every sort of six months at the moment, it seems, as a new expansion of, of PDR. It's not just developers that, that gain from it, although they definitely do. I guess the government also gains because it allow it allows them to, you know, add numbers to their housing targets. I think it's about 13,000 a year um, homes are built through permitted development right except they don't actually have to build them obviously because it's being they're being converted from other from other types of buildings like offices and now a wider range you know shops and you know cafes and god knows what else why they're so controversial permitted development rights is precisely because they don't use the planning system meaning their quality of the homes that um, are produced under permitted development rights are often very uh you know, very questionable. And there's huge issues around size of the flats, uh, around daylight, around location of the flats. So you've got these awful situations with blocks, office blocks in the middle of nowhere that are being converted into these tiny sort of rabbit hutch homes. Um, I think the most famous one is um, was in Harlow, Terminus House. Um, yeah, it's just shocking, really, that this is allowed in in uh, today. I still can't really get my head around it. And the government, on the one hand, does this with permitted development rights, and on the other hand, says it wants beautiful, you know, it wants beautiful homes, and it's completely sort of schizophrenic. I think. Yeah, certainly the terminal house is something that's also been covered widely in local media, and it's like really horrific. The stories that have been the testimonials. Have you come across interesting testimonials in your investigations? 
Yeah, so I a few years back, I think it was 2019, I wrote something about... Um, I did some research and found some places in, in South London where, you know, they were really small, really small units being being converted. I think a lot of these office blocks are used to house people on temporary accommodation lists. So councils are putting people in there who really should not be in there. And it's like, it's proper, it's proper shocking stuff. In some ways, the government, I think, has maybe realised that and they're trying to do a few things to kind of um, improve quality of it. But it's just strange because there's been so many warnings about about the kind of homes that permitted development rights are creating, um, including from bodies, you know, the RBA, the TCPA, the Town and Country Planning Association, the Local Government Association, the Royal Institute of Chartered Surveyors. It can, the list goes on, you know, all these people saying this is a really bad idea. And the government commissioned its own report, which was authored by an academic from UCL, which also concluded that homes built under PDR were worse. Um, and yet, you know, two days later, it announces yet another expansion of development rights. Uh, it's just, it's kind of bonkers, to be honest. We're familiar of, uh, to hearing architects complaining about the planning process holding them back, you know, like criticising planners. But, um, you know, in your investigation of permitted development rights, have you actually come across any example of architecture being improved by this lack of planning restrictions? Or are the results always completely dire? Yeah, it's a good point, isn't it? Like, are there any really creative uses of c- converted offices um i think there was one example in archway it was a tower um but they used they they used pdr to do the scheme but they ended up submitting a full plans application anyway and that's what good architects probably would do because you want you know you want to get this stuff properly approved you don't want to just like sneak it through the back door if you're a proper architect and that's i guess that comes around to this quite interesting for architects' story, because most architects aren't involved in um, permitted development rights because they don't use architects. So, I mean, that was what, like, the RBA came out and said all architects should boycott, boycott PDR, and some people were like, pointing out, well, is that actually going to do anything? Because PDR, <laughs> PDR schemes aren't exactly using, you know, AJ100 practices to, to put forward their schemes. And do you think something like a, a parliamentary inquiry, does that have any real power to make changes here? I mean, is this something that we should be optimistic about or people who are living in places like this should be optimistic about? Hopefully, yeah, hopefully. I think that there's a lot of other issues that goes alongside this, which are also really important, which we haven't yet touched on, but and probably there's no time. But, you know, there's things like affordable housing contributions. So developers who um, develop under PDR don't have to provide affordable housing contributions, meaning... Um, we're missing out on all those potential affordable homes. Um, instead, you know, developers are just able to flip sites. So that's that's one side of it. Also, there's the whole side of it, the high street, and what and what converting all the putting all these use classes into one big umbrella. What that will do to to the high streets that are already suffering hugely in the wake of the COVID pandemic. So I think inquiry is really timely, and hopefully, will really help to explore some of these issues. Our fourth story was covered in the AJ in an article written by its competitions editor. That's me. Um, It's all to do with the seven concepts which have been shortlisted for this year's Anti-Pavilion, a demountable pavilion at Columbia and Brunswick Wharf in Hackney, North East London. The Anti-Pavilion competition, now in its fifth year, invited artists, architects, designers and makers to draw up radical visions for a temporary and relocatable Bartizan-style hanging intervention at the Hoxton Docks complex on the Regent's Canal. The £25,000 project 
backed by historic regeneration specialist Shiva, was launched in January despite the client's ongoing legal battle with Hackney Council, which forced the removal of last year's winning scheme, a series of fiberglass sharks by architect Jamie Shorten, just two months after it was installed. The council, however, failed in a similar bid to have other anti-pavilion structures removed from the site. A forthcoming court case will decide whether the shark injunction holds, and a public inquiry is expected in the summer. This year's brief included the requirement that structures could easily be demounted, adapted and transported to a new location if necessitated by the outcome of the client's legal battle. Finalists included a bamboo structure dubbed All Along the Watchtower, which was submitted by engineer Morgan Trowland, who, with Julian Maynard Smith, co-designed a similar tensegrity tower for the Extinction Rebellion protests held outside News International's Broxbourne Printworks in September. Other other finalists included Hackney Injunction by Mark Cunningham, False Negative by Daniel Coley and Wei Gu, the Weaved Bartizan by Kian Pham, Scaffolding Hackney by Laura Massery, The Haggerston Mirage by Torsten Sherwood, and Antichamber by Nima Sadar of Studio N. I mean, a lot of architects have participated in this year's competition, even despite the client's ongoing legal battle with the local council. Um, I mean, what does it say about the culture of architecture and its willingness to push boundaries when it comes to innovation and uh, the perception of serving a social purpose. I think architects love love this kind of thing. I think it's 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 very interesting because there's a kind of um, there's a bit of controversy behind it, which you know drives it a little bit up the news agenda, doesn't it? And it also gives it gives it a little bit of an edge. Um, I think everyone likes the idea that they're doing something a little bit cheeky, and I think this this competition is exactly that, and that's what that's what makes it great. But yeah, you know, it does sometimes seem like the the planning system could possibly have its priorities in the, in the wrong places. Okay, hear me out. I mean, like small buildings like the pub in the previous story, uh, or this tiny twenty five thousand pound anti pavilion structures. They're getting enormous scrutiny, while seemingly huge developments, some of them full of quite frankly some pretty ghastly architecture, seem to be nodded through without much of a second thought. You know, I'm sure many of the architects who've listening, you know, who've done quite modest domestic projects like rear extensions to houses for example they'll be familiar uh, with the hoops they have to jump through to get planning permission while at the same time seemingly you know the larger developers get a comparatively easy ride you know so why is it that london's underfunded planners seem to be focusing a disproportionately large amount of energy on small buildings <laughs> i don't know if i would agree i don't think that they are focusing disproportionate amount of funding on small buildings i think it's when something comes along that doesn't fit into the you know the normal run of you know, run of doing things i think that's when you get these kind of strange <laughs> outbursts of of planning decisions like this you know this trying to put a load of sharks in a canal i mean <laughs> that's not what planners are used to dealing with so then you get these kind of strange responses which might look look like oh why are planners, you know, focusing on this on this you know, brilliant architecture competition? And and yes, I totally agree. But I don't necessarily think it's a sign of, um, you know, planners having their priorities wrong. Although it could be, I think it's more just a case of them not knowing how to deal with it. Um, there's a similar thing about the, um, you know, the car parks this week. There was a, a there was a scheme that it got it had loads of community support, um, and it was rejected because it didn't have enough car parking spaces. And it's sort of planning policies obviously don't 
aren't always working and often get it wrong. Our fifth and final story was covered in the AJ. It's all about Assemble, which is the only architectural team among the 10 winners chosen for Festival UK 2022, a £120 million UK-wide celebration formerly dubbed the Festival of Brexit. The Turner Prize winning collective, which featured in the AJ 40 Under 40, will now take its concept into full production to be ready in time for the festival, which is intended to bring together and showcase creativity in every corner of the UK. According to the Festival UK 2022 website, Assemble will deliver a quote, immersive experience exploring the wonder of the human mind through architecture, neuroscience, technology, light and sound. Well, sounds brilliant. Uh, Images of this winning concept, though, have yet to be shared with anyone. Originally known as the Festival of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, uh, the UK-wide once-in-a-generation celebration was announced two years ago by the former Prime Minister Theresa May. This £120 million event uh, was immediately dubbed Festival of Brexit, uh, but it's now been temporarily renamed Festival UK 2022. It's curated by Martin Green, formerly director of Hull UK City of Culture 2017. And although inspired by the 1851 Great Exhibition and by the 1951 Festival of Britain, it will be spread across the entire country rather than focusing on a single venue. Three million pounds was spent on the initial phase. So 30 teams were given 10,000 pounds each to draw up concepts. Uh, and then 10 of them have been chosen to go forward. So that like blows pretty much every other competition out of the water ever. I mean, when we, I mean, certainly if we look at this one, I mean, obviously it was Im- immediately derided in the press and it certainly didn't help the fact that they don't even have a name for the festival yet. Um, it doesn't really help them uh, go, go, uh, go down positively. But the, um, you know, should we, should we possibly be celebrating the fact that at least some money's been spent on research and development and architecture and culture? I think so. As long as it doesn't end up like, you know, Millennium Dome situation, I think I think it, it I think we probably should be celebrating it. And I think someone, you know, practice like Assemble, hopefully they'll do something really creative and, you know, something that pokes fun at the government and all its ridiculousness. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think it's I think it's a good thing. Um, I mean, possibly one of the fair criticisms of Festival UK 22 is that when you compare it to, say, the Festival of Britain in 1951, the Festival of Britain channeled the entire talents of architecture and design in its era uh, to create not only the amazing Royal Festival Hall and the Festival Gardens on the South Bank, uh, but also uh, landmark progressive housing developments in Poplar and also Churchill Gardens in Pimlico. Um, and, you know, it, it, possibly a fair criticism of this is that it's not really going as far or as ambitious as its uh, predecessor. It's true. And wouldn't it be nice to have something that, you know, where a competition was held to build, actually build something new for the city that might, you know, contribute to some of its huge demands for housing or that, or that kind of thing. And I think instead what we've got here is a kind of slightly sort of, it's just a sort of spectacle um, and something that, that is, is quite hard to grasp hold of. And perhaps that's why it hasn't gone down so well. Ella, thank you for joining us for this week's London. It's been an immense pleasure hearing your review of the news. Um, where can listeners um, keep up to speed with the things that you're writing about? Um, you can keep up to speed on the AJ website and I'd encourage people to check out the guide that we wrote, which is a guide for architectural assistance employment rights, which is on the website. Uh, are you on Twitter as well? Is that a good place for people to follow you? I'm on Twitter at Ella Jessel. 
Super. Well, thanks again for coming on the show. I hope we can uh, have you again as one of our special guests in the future soon. Thank you. You've been listening to The Lundown, a show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at at OpenCityLondon or by using the hashtag Lundown, L-N-D-D-W-N. Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk slash support and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible and equitable city. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.